tonight's talk. So, the human brain is, uh, for lack of a better term, a biosocial organ, which means that it is constantly developing and it develops in conjunction or in relationship to other brains, which means the way you interact with other people is a very formative and important uh, factor in how your brain uh, develops to optimal um, functioning. The brain is set to seek secure relationships with other people, not just in childhood, but throughout the entire course of a human life. We need secure relationships with other, other people. That's what the brain is set up for. It's never set up to isolate for uh, extended periods of time without secure human interactions. Um, this is because the very nature of the emotional mind, um, as we'll talk about in a second, uh, is set up literally to activate and deactivate in conjunction with the way we relate to other people. So, um, just covering a little bit of... Uh, Developmental Psych 101, <laughs> but uh, it's important that we know this. When we're all uh, moving through our lives, we need in these secure relationships to have a couple of basic um, needs met. So what are all of our needs? I'm going to tell you. Um, There's different lists, but when you go through the lists from people like uh, Fanegi, Kohut, Maine, Ainsworth, Bowlby, uh, Alan Shore, all the bigwigs in, in this domain, you begin to notice a bunch of similar characteristics we're always looking for in our relationships with other people. The most two important are security and emotional mirroring. Security is just simply the sense that you can let down your guard when you're around somebody and that they'll have your back to a certain extent, that you, that with another person there's someone who is monitoring the environment with you and is taking care of you and if you become uh, sick, incapacitated, unaware for some reason, the, the other person you can trust not to just take off and run. So, uh, so much for junkie culture, if you've ever been in that. It's not a great... Because <laughs> they will take off and run, believe me. Uh, mirroring is, uh, is somebody who sees your emotions, can read your emotions. And emotions are very important messages that we're sending. We're letting other people know of our internal feeling states. And so somebody who can read your emotions and can mirror them back, which is slightly through their gaze, through their body language, through their tone of voice, can let you know that they feel it up to a certain degree. Not intellectually get it, but that they can feel your sadness, your fear, your frustration, your anxiety. So it's when somebody says, oh, yes, I know, I can feel anxiety, too, you, you don't really believe them. But if somebody, when you're anxious or frightened, holds your glance, 
and in a voice that's very tender, expresses how they know what fear is like too, or they, they can feel and understand, they can relate to it, or they can repeat back, yes, I can see that there's fear present, then you can begin to deactivate. And that's very, very crucial for all human beings to be emotionally mirrored and feel secure. Now, the other um, three things we need are, are probably less primary, but they're very important nonetheless. We need, to a certain degree, validation, which is somebody seeing our acts, our... Uh, the things we do and, and letting us know that uh, we have a certain degree of, uh, of um, capability, that they see um, our endeavors, our actions. And it gives us a sense of um, a possibility that we can achieve things in the world. Uh, another category is what's known as um, idealization or setting uh, goals, people who set things to aspire towards. So you can have parents that are very loving, caretakers that are very loving when you're young, and they can make you feel secure, but if they don't really seem to achieve or aspire to very much in the world, then it can lead to a sense of, of uh, a lack of goals, a lack of, of heading in any uh, direction or a sense of of uh, anything to aspire towards. And these are important emotional needs that we have. And finally, uh, membership, which is just feeling that we belong in a community or a family or a group that's larger than ourselves. Membership is different than security. Security is someone who will take care of us. Uh, membership is just simply feeling that we're part of something, that we're part of... Uh, uh, a larger social environment that we are socially desirable, which means that other people like us or want to be around us. And this is an, another quality that we all look for. So the keys of these, are the two most important things we really are looking for all the time, is security and emotional mirroring. And then the rest are are extremely useful as well. So it won't be surprising to learn that while a lot of people have uh, somewhat secured childhoods where these needs are being met, a lot of us uh, at key stages of our lives, it doesn't have to be childhood, it can, we need these things throughout our lives, and there can be points in our lives where we feel that the important relationships we're in with the people we're around are not providing either security or emotional tolerance, mirroring. So, for instance, you have kids growing up in a very safe family, but then they get shipped off to boarding school where they become tortured for <laughs> months on end or go off to summer camp where it's abusive or go <coughs> off to schoolyards where they get bullied. And so in those key areas of life, the needs for security and mirroring are no longer met. They uh, feel uh, traumatized by these interactions. So what happens when uh, we don't get these key uh, needs met at points in our life? Well, uh, the two principal results is we'll become, uh, on one end, anxious and preoccupied, constantly trying to maintain 
a relationship with someone who's sometimes giving us security and sometimes not, or demanding that we perform for it. So that's one possibility we can cling, become very demanding, clingy, constantly worried about uh, if the person that we're in a significant relationship will be there for us. This is seen, for instance, with children who have parents that demand performance for, in exchange for love. The children will not interact with other children. They'll be caught up in worrying what their caretakers are doing if they're still monitoring them. The other possibility, if we don't get our needs met, is avoidance, of course. So rather than uh, the anxiousness, the sensitivity, the low self-esteem, and the clinginess of somebody who's preoccupied and constantly demanding love from somebody, the other possibility is we'll just run. We'll decide we can't get it from this need will not be met by other people, and I'm just going to take care of myself and fuck you, you know. I don't need this. Now, in this situation, uh, people often uh, turn out to feel either hostile or superior. Uh, can be emotions that we'll expect to see. And um, these people will often compensate for this lack of, of things that we all need. We all need uh, to feel secure. We all need to have our emotions understood by other people. But if we're at a time in our life when those needs aren't being met, whether childhood or school years or uh, any other period of our life, then what we'll do is we'll seek these, we'll try to turn off these needs through other means. For instance, drugs are an attempt to replace other people in our lives. Drugs are what happens when a set of needs aren't being met, and so instead of turning to other people for a way to relieve our sadness or our anger or our loneliness, we instead turn to uh, a narcotic or an, a form of alcohol to get rid of that emotional state. So, again, you have two responses when your needs aren't going to be met. You'll either demand it and cling at all costs to somebody who you think can give it to you, no matter how poorly they behave, or B, you'll just give up and try to get those needs met by another means other than human beings. So does that make sense so far? Is that sort of sinking in? Okay. So... <clears throat> These situations are known as unresolved. And um, what happens that's most important to know is that uh, the intellectual events of your life, all the theory, the concepts, the language, the stuff that you talk about, that's governed on the left side of your brain, which is known as explicit. And you are aware of your ideas, you're aware of your thoughts, you're aware of all the knowledge that you have. But there's another part of your brain, it's called the uh, right hemisphere, and that records all of the relationships in your life, are recorded. They're basically written into that part of the, the brain, and it doesn't write it in a way that the left hemisphere does. It's called implicit knowledge. It's an unconscious form of, of, of learning. 
much like, uh, for example, repetitive behaviors that we do after a while, from brushing our teeth to uh, learning how to swim, you don't really have awareness. You don't bring a lot of attention to when you're brushing your teeth. You just do it. It's, it's embodied. A lot of the relationship expectations we have are, or the dynamics are written into a part of the brain that is not conscious. So this form of, of learning or expectation building of others are sort of like templates or maps. We begin to expect all the relationships in the future to behave the way these core relationships that didn't meet our needs uh, we be begin to expect others to perform in the same way. Let's be very concrete because this can be somewhat abstract. If uh, at a very young age the caretaker that provided security, say um, uh, the mother in this case, I'm just making this up, but if she's um, very narcissistic, removed, and only sometimes shows love, then we will begin to expect, as an adult, all of the people that we turn to for a sense of security to behave in the same way. We won't associate loving, attentive people with security. When we need a sense of security, we will look for people who behaved like our mom did. Does that make sense? So the key relationships are hard ingrained into the brain, and I can see the look of dismay on all of your faces, don't worry. <laughs> I don't present things without solutions here, so. <laughs> Although there's a 80% there's a chance that we maintain the same attachment styles throughout the entirety of our life, that's because 80% of the population does absolutely nothing about it. They just keep going again and again and again into the same exact dy dynamics and give up hope of finding any other solution. So, we develop unconscious expectations. When we look for emotional mirroring for people, we also expect the, the, the early relationship that, uh, if the person we turn to for emotional mirroring, for instance, an older brother or a sister or a father or whatever, was um, at times present, but then at times would um, completely lose interest and, or be caught up in other events, then we will have this anxious expectation that whenever we need emotional mirroring to be on guard and to look for people who are constantly not reliable. So we tend to look in our adult lives for people who resemble the, uh, the core uh, templates that were set earlier in life. This is all unconscious, which is why uh, there's something called in psychology repetition compulsion. If you don't know what it is, it's basically going again and again and again to destructive relationships, even though all of someone's friends are screaming, no, what the fuck are you doing? Not again. He's an asshole. She's an asshole. Don't go there. Stop. 
hear these fungals for another four months. I can't do it. I can't do it, please. She's doing it. Oh, fuck. He's doing it again. Oh, really? So, that's repetition compulsion. And that's because... The intellectual mind has nothing to do with the implicit mind of the right hemisphere. It does not have any control over the workings of the relational part of the brain. You can argue with yourself to death, but if you have ingrained an expectation that the only way you can get uh, uh, idealization, validation, or or emotional mirroring is from somebody who's a jerk, <laughs> then you'll keep going to jerks because the template has been hard written in there from much earlier in life. This is why the great philosopher Schopenhauer, who I am the only human being who reads because he's way out of vogue, but um, <coughs> plus every book he wrote was 800 fucking pages long. <laughs> No, not all of them, but most of them were. Um, but uh, he wrote that you can change the way a person thinks by talking to them, but you can't change the way a person behaves by talking to them. He noted this in the 1840s, I believe. This is ex the exact summary. The Buddha noted this as well. He said that uh, it's one thing to understand the Dharma, which won't really accomplish much. If you want to undo your behaviors, your anusayas, then you have to do it. You have to literally practice and practice until you see for yourself through experience. And that's the, that's the real uh, the bar he set to experience. And Schopenhauer said that if you want to change the way we behave, you literally have to show someone that they can get their, me, their needs met in a different way. You literally have to show it to them. And you also have to show them, not tell them, show them that the way they're going about it is causing and always will cause suffering. There's a moment in an alcoholic's life where they wake up after a million people have told them to stop drinking and they still drink. There's that one moment in their life where they wake up and they feel nauseous. They look in the mirror, they feel like shit, and all they see in the mirror is that, you know, not, is that person from last night who was drinking. And they, be, they make the association, the deep, implicit association between drinking and suffering. And all the amount of arguing and pleading with them hasn't amounted to anything. But the moment they make that association, my suffering is because of this behavior, that's when it stops. So the emotional mind that guides how we behave in relationships does not understand any logic. It never will. You can try to talk yourself into changing or talk your friends into changing. You will not accomplish anything. But if you literally can wait and patiently show people the long-term results of their actions is always leading towards suffering, and then at the same time you can then show them another way. Uh, you can create a different process. So um, 
one of the ways we see this happening a lot in life, uh, in relationships, is um, the common experience of uh, friends who will get into very short-term relationships. The relationship will catastrophically explode very quickly. Uh, and then the emotional reaction will be, it seems, um, well out of line with the length of the relationship. People will be distraught for a long period of time, even though it was a relationship of a short period of time. Another example, which I'll work with tonight, is the case where someone disappoints us in life. It could be a mild disappointment at work. It could be a mild disappointment in any endeavor of our life. A friend who we care about but doesn't return our call. Someone who doesn't live up to their end of the bargain. And that relationship, that person we keep on thinking about again and again and again and again and again and again we think. Even though we've decided intellectually, I'm never going to trust them again. That's it. That's the final straw. I'm never going to trust them again. Did they call? Did they call? Did they call? I'm never going to trust them again. Fought that person. Did they call? They didn't call. Okay, fuck them. Fuck them. Fuck them. So, uh, this is what the mechanism behind this is, of course, it's not about the current relationship. It's about the fact that we have unresolved uh, earlier dynamics where we didn't get those needs met. And it left us with an emotional residue of this person reminds us of a mother, a father, an older sibling, a core relationship in our life where we didn't get our needs met. And so we bring all those unresolved, unmet emotions into the present. And that's what keeps us hooked. You can completely resolve the relationship with the present-day person and, and basically write them off. But the emotional mind, the right hemisphere that has written the dynamic in, will literally latch on to this situation. And it will try to figure it out because this person is triggered that, that, the under, that underlying expectation that this is the type of person that I should be demanding attention, love, emotional mirroring from. It doesn't matter that the left hemisphere has said, move along. They're not going to give it to us. Move along. Not going to happen. Move along. But the right hemisphere is, please, please. I don't know what's doing that motion, but it's... it's. So we keep going back because your right hemisphere of your brain, beyond developing relationship expectations, it also directs your attention, where you focus on. So you can intellectually tell yourself that something is dead, it's gone, it's buried, a relationship is not going to happen. But the right hemisphere of the brain has associated this person with earlier key relationships that we needed to get needs met. And it will try and try and try to get those needs met from this person. It's called, uh, in, in psychological terms, it's called mastering. We're trying to master a situation that we couldn't master in earlier life. We're still trying to get those needs met 
from these, these, these people. The, this person today reminds me of my father, who was crazy, so I select crazy people to have a sense of male kinship with, and even though I know I'm not going to get my needs met, I'll go again and again. So the key then is how do we get out of these repetitive, these cyclical repetitive enactments where we keep going to unsatisfactory uh, people again and again and again that trip us up? How do we let go of being hooked? Um, the process is actually relatively uh, easy to describe. It's just very difficult to do. Um, the first part is during the day, if you're caught in an obsessive resentment with someone, you keep thinking about this person who is infuriatingly not living up to their end of the bargain, has let you down, or someone that you're just hooked by. <coughs> Feel what's beneath those thoughts. You can just say, hello, I see you, it's okay. And uh, a trick to help you do this is to journal it out, write out whatever the thoughts are, because they'll keep on repeating ad nauseum, and one trick to get them to quiet a little bit is simply to sit down and write out all the thoughts. Don't keep them going in your head, just write them all out on journal. But then, when they come up again, just... Allow them to be up there, bring your awareness into the body, and note which muscle groups have gotten tense when you're thinking about this uh, obsessive uh, relationship. So you think about, look at your belly, it might be tight, your jaw might be locked, the throat, the chest might be clenched. So there's all this, there's, there's all this physical landscape beneath the mind that's reacting when you don't get your needs met. And just bring awareness to it. So, that's what we do in the day-to-day -day part when we're, it's invasive and we're caught up. We just note, allow it to be there, just bring awareness. And then if you want, you can relax and breathe and soften the body. If you do that, the thoughts will become less dominant. But in your meditation, this is where the real um, reparative work begins. Um, we... Once we get the mind really quiet, we bring up the image of that person, whoever it is that's triggered us. And you hold their image in your mind, not the story. Don't go. <laughs> you can go into the story for years and not come up for air, but we want mm -hmm. to do something reparative here. So you hold the image of the person in your mind, and you bring your awareness into the body, and you ask yourself, how does it feel? And if nothing comes up, you then might be a little bit more descriptive. How does it feel when someone doesn't return our calls? How does it feel when someone doesn't treat us kindly? How does it feel when we feel unseen by someone? How does it feel when someone suddenly removes their attention? Whatever. Whatever is evocative to you, just keep fishing around with different questions. The idea is to ask the appropriately wet, emotionally wet questions. So you start getting the same physical reaction that you got during the obsessive state. You really want that to arise. So hopefully the same set of physical enactments will occur. And 
what you do is instead of trying to get rid of it by thinking of the person and trying to change their behavior, we just create a safe space for these emotional feelings of not, that are, of not being met, not being seen, not being heard, not being loved, feelings of loneliness, feelings of abandonment. We allow them to arise and stay present and we create what's known as a safe container in the body to feel these feelings. Once you've held them and you begin to, to feel a sense of movement in them, then the last part of that process is to begin to drop really reassuring phrases, to let these feeling states know that it's okay. Most of the time when we feel these things, loneliness, sadness, disappointment, uh, we try to get rid of these feelings by either obsessing about the person or by compensating through other means. Uh, but to actually sit and feel the feelings and deactivate them is the key, key process. Because what we're doing, in essence, is we're de developing a process of emotionally mirroring our own experience. We are doing for ourselves what other people didn't do for us. We're reading the emotions, allowing them to arise, noting them, taking care of them. So even though we didn't get this key need of emotional mirroring in earlier life done in this arena, we can do it as adults in our meditation. And then once that process is done, you can return to the breath or to meta phrases and just release the whole state. Um, the third part of this practice, and probably some might argue the most crucial part, is to begin to disperse these needs away from one individual to be met by a group of people that are safer. So instead of going again and again and again to the same type of person for um, uh, emotional mirroring, security, uh, validation, we begin to experiment trying to uh, get these needs met by a larger, wider circle. Uh, a lot of people never do this because at first, if we don't have this process in place of creating a safe container for the emotions, there just won't be the trust that we can allow ourselves to emotionally develop needs in relation to people that don't remind us of key caretakers in earlier life. But once we start doing the inner work, we begin to find as well, externally, that we can begin to experiment with expressing these needs, these emotional uh, uh, unmet energies that we have for attention, security, understanding, validation. We can explore it instead with a community, if we are lucky enough to find them. This is why uh, Schopenhauer extolled uh, Eastern spiritual practice, why, one of the reasons I was interested in him, and why there's such a thing as a Sangha, Buddhist community, because what we are here for, uh, in addition to sitting in meditation, we are here to create a safe space for each other to express our underlying needs that are not being met and to create a sense of safety so that we can give each other 
the attention, uh, the love, the acceptance that we've been going to in all the wrong places to achieve. So the third part is to really begin to seek it out in different paradigms. Now, sometimes if the, the needs haven't been met in a really, really traumatic way, we might need a therapeutic alliance in which to develop that. That's probably why I do so much one-on-one counseling. But uh, I think a lot of these needs can simply be met by taking the time to risk just sharing slowly what our real emotional states are, rather than trying to perform in front of other people when they ask us how we're doing and just saying, fine. Taking the risk to say, well, I've had a difficult day, or I'm feeling a little lonely right now in my life, or I'm feeling a little frustrated, or I don't feel I have a lot of uh, achievements in my life that I can point to. Begin to be a little bit emotionally vulnerable not outside of romantic relationships, outside of the normal type of relationships where we go to for validation, and to begin to explore and see if we can begin to share this load with other people so that we don't keep going back again and again and again to places where they won't be met. So, we have time for a few questions. Thank you for listening.